All right, welcome to episode 430 of the Hodge Podge Podcast. I am your host, as always, for 430 episodes, Dylan Hodge, but you guys already know that. I'm on Instagram at I am Mr. Dylan Hodge. You can follow the podcast as well on Instagram at the Hodge Podge Podcast. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether it be iHeartRadio, Apple Podcast, or anywhere else that podcasts are available, please hit that five-star review and write us a little review. Um, that would help us very greatly as we rise at the podcast charts. If you guys want to, you can skip all this and go check out the YouTube channel where I just post the interviews. Um, those are always fun because it's cool to, because I have a small, I think it's like a little over 100 subscribers, which I don't really <clears throat> post about my YouTube or share my YouTube as much as I do the podcast, which it, 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 it's probably... Probably not the probably not the right thing to not do, but I just don't do it. It's just it's not in my it's it's just not in my daily work ethic to to, to post my YouTube. Um, but I do want to talk a few minutes about us uh, about a few things um, about what's to come in the future of the podcast um, and just a little updates of stuff that I've talked about the past couple of weeks. So you guys know that <clears throat> I also want to share this one story that happened to me today as I'm recording this. So, but you guys know every year at the end of the year I do a best albums of the year. And last year we had Brooklyn on it. This year we're having Brooklyn again. But here's where I find the trouble in doing that. I find the trouble in that because when I'm listening to a new album, I'm keeping it up to the standards of, oh, is this best album of the year material instead of just, is this a good album in general versus, is this even any good worth listening to? Now, of course, I'm not going to listen to artists that I never listened to or a genre that I'm not, that like, I'm not going to listen to a new heavy metal album because I don't listen to that much um, of the newer heavy metal or the new the newer rock um, unless it's people that I listened to back in the day but I just have trouble doing that and I wonder if you guys have that same and I have a cough drop in my mouth I'm have a sore throat I know it's against the radio to um, and you have anything in your mouth while talking <laughs> that's what she said um, but I have a cough up my mouth. I'm sorry. I, if I have to, if it's aggravate me enough, I'll have to take it. I just, my throat's a little sore and I'm trying to catch it before it gets too rough. But, and I never had that problem before. And that's, that's what curious, if I stop doing the best albums of the year, will the albums and the music go back to being the same for me? Or will I always hold them to a certain standard? Food for thought. Also, I am still working on doing the Quentin Tarantino films, ranking them. Um, we were supposed to film two weeks ago, and then last week ago we were supposed to record, and we never got to it. Um, that is, um, it's in the books to do it. Uh, it's just when is the schedule right? Because I started a new job. And with that job, I have very, I don't have limited time. I have a lot of time, actually. It's just, um, I'm so backed up doing a lot of things. And this new job requires me to know a lot and to study a lot. And so I'm, I'm kind of in between doing that. And so, but I was able to record four podcasts, uh, two one day and two another day. And so those, those were great podcasts and... That was one you heard last week and the one you're hearing this week. So that th those were done on a Monday, I believe. But it doesn't matter. But we are working on the Quentin Tarantino films. We're uh, recording that for the ranking of those. We're also, at the end of this podcast, there will be a movie review. I have been lacking you guys on that. Um, so there will be a movie review at the end of this podcast. So if you listen to these introductions and just like to hear me talk then 
that's good because it, it, it helps you guys know me better and understand me more. And and it would actually help me if you guys would tweet me at Hodge or send me a direct message or even send me an email at thehodgepodgeproductions at gmail.com. And those are always in the, the, the podcast notes below. Also in the YouTube below. So, yeah. Um, I want to know, do you guys like me coming on here before the episode and and just just talking, just just getting things off my chest, stuff like that. If not, hey, then let me know and we'll fix that and we won't have this anymore. I just like to get on here and ramble and talk about what's going on through my day because I don't really talk to anyone about personal stuff. You know, I don't really do that. I'm not, I'm not that open. But for some reason, when I sit here in my studio by myself, with my laptops, my recording studio, my, my mixers, and all that stuff. But I want to share a story that happened to me. So I'm recording this um, August 27th. This is a Friday. This is for the this is for the uh, August 30th episode of the podcast. And so. I was I've been busy with week uh, with <laughs> I've been busy with work all week. You guys you understand I'm tired here, and I'll, I'll explain. So, you know I've been not getting home till eleven ten or eleven o'clock, and then not doing anything. You know you have to do everything, and it's about midnight the time you go to sleep, and then you got to get up at five six o'clock the next morning, and you start your day all over. And so. I've just been suffering from these terrible, terrible headaches for the past couple of past couple of weeks. And so today I go to Walmart. And I'm like, oh, I gotta go to the bathroom. So I go to the bathroom and th- this these don't have the actual um you know normal Walmarts they have the stalls, like you just open the door and there are stalls. This one just has like one toilet there, so like the door locks on the outside. So what I did was I just went in there and I knocked. I didn't hear anything. I knocked again. I was waiting for this person's response <laughs> to tell me it was okay. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That is funny. I hope you guys got a good laugh out of that. Without further ado, let's go over right now. I'm done yapping to the introduction for today's guest on the podcast. On the podcast today, we've got Tom Bourgeois. Tom Bourgeois is a journalist and also an author of the New York Times bestselling book, Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. He's talking today about how the book came to be, the first person interviewed for the book, and how that kind of transformed into getting some of the biggest names in hard rock and heavy metal music. There's also a chat about how Nirvana came in the early 90s and just killed the metal scene, the hair metal scene, and it just kind of disappeared. That was um, that. That was an interesting chat. This talks about why Bon Jovi wouldn't do the book. Who are the roughest band? Was it Motley Crue or was it Guns N' Roses? He chats about going to Joe Perry's house and actually hanging out with Steven Tyler. I mean, we talk a good hour about nothing but this book, and this book is available anywhere you get your books. I have got my autographed copy from Tom. Thanks, Tom. And it's going to be hanging up right above my head so that all, all the people in the YouTube lane can see it. So without further ado, let's go over right now to my buddy, Appreciate yeah. you doing this for me, dude. It's it's an absolute honor to have you guys on. Have you on? We tried we tried to get um oh, thank you. we tried to get Beanstalk on, but uh 
it's cool just to have you on, man. It's re- it's really an honor to have you on the show. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much. So thank you very much. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. I want to real quick tell you kind of how I know you and how the book I want to talk about today, nothing but a good time. And so one of my heroes and the reason I do this podcast is Chris Jericho, one of my all time favorites. Okay. And you guys were on his show and I was like, okay, cool. I, I love heavy metal. I love classic rock. I love that stuff. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to listen and I may wind up reading the book. Well, I didn't get a chance to read it, but I got a chance to listen to the audible audiobook on it. And man, yeah. oh, cool. Let me tell you, this is one of the best and I'm going to say a definitive biography because that's kind of in retrospect what it is. It's a definitive biography of metal and heavy metal and hair metal, whatever you want to call it, all put into one and it's one of the best ones that I've read in a really really long time. And I, and I really mean that. Thank I'm not just you saying so that. Much. I appreciate and, I'm, and I'm not just saying that because you're on here. That's absolute truth. Right. So that's cool. That's, a, that's amazing. So the book that we're going to talk about today mostly is Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. And so first question would be, how did this book come about to be? Because I think you mentioned that it took like four or five years to just write. Yeah, I mean, it took it took a really long time. Basically, it's been uh, Rich. I'm about five years older than Rich Beanstalk, my uh, Richard. I call him Rich. He's called Richard in official uh, publishing circles. But if you hear me talking about Rich, I mean Richard Beanstalk, my co-author. Um, I, so I'm about five years older than him. And I've known him since like 19... 96 or something when I was the managing editor of Guitar World magazine and uh, I just started there. I was probably like like 25 years old or, or something. And um, he came in as an intern mm. at, at the magazine. And so I, so I've seriously known him for, you know, like a 20, more than 20 years, 25 years. And the whole time, and, you know, I think the first thing I ever said to him was, hey man, do you smoke weed? Because he, he didn't answer <laughs> something like that. But then once we got to know each other, um, he and I would always talk about this kind of music. Like, you know, from, and you got to remember that when in 1995, 1996, I see this Nirvana uh, album cover behind you. But that was what, was happening at the time like we weren't getting to write about the bands that we had grown up with you weren't you didn't get to write about white lion or poison or any of that stuff because that stuff was not cool at the time so me and rich would have like these little side discussions about it and um we worked together on and off for like 20 years after that you know sometimes at the same company sometimes not and we'd always talk about this music and like get really involved you know like it would be like we always are like it was before podcasts, but we would basically be having like a two man podcast discussion about like warrant or or which warrant record was better or what this that the other thing. And um, I would say the first mention of the, that we should do this book was about ten years ago. Like we were like you know we should do a book on this one day, and then about four years ago, four and a half, five years ago now, we just like somehow knew that it was time to do it. Like we could kind of feel that um, if we didn't get started, somebody was gonna beat us to the punch. And I don't think either of us, we, we had so much passion for this topic that I don't think any, we would both have been so disappointed in ourselves if we, like if, if we had started this and then another book had come out on the subject. So that's how it, you know, it was really 10, a whole lifetime of, of talking about this stuff and then once we started the process of interviewing people um and getting a getting a book deal and all that stuff it took like four years from the day we decided to say like we're doing this because we interviewed like 200 people um yeah you know and oddly even though the book ended up selling really well and becoming like a new york times bestseller which is completely insane to me nobody actually when we were looking for a book deal we couldn't we were having a lot of trouble um so 
that took a while too. I have to give full kudos to our editor, um, Mark Resnick, who, who really believed in it because he's a kid who grew up on Long Island listening to Twisted Sister. So he understood the value of it. But yeah, it was a really long haul. Um, and, uh, but that was it. It was really born of, of passion. Like I still get in my car and I turn on Hair Nation on Sirius XM. Like this is my, my music. Hmm. You know, I wonder when you're doing this because it took me a while doing this podcast to get to get someone like you on here which and, and I mean that as in two years ago you would have been out of the realm because you're with this big book publisher and you're a New York Times bestseller so it kind of would have but and I wonder if this is the same for you and I'll get to that in just a second here uh, but what I mean is it took me to get the smallest people to get some of the bigger guys on was that kind of how it was writing the book where you're like you know we want to end up getting paul stanley and gene simmons for the book but we're gonna have to deal with probably a manager or someone that was there behind the scenes before you know someone else bigger jumps on board there was some of that luckily and definitely you know especially with the higher level people you're always contending with who else has done it sure who else has done who else have you interviewed for the book um and that's just the way i'm sure that's the way it is with like when people actors are signing on for movies they're like who else signed on for this you know um we had the advantage that uh rich Richard, my co-author is still very, very active as a freelance writer. So he's writing for Guitar World Magazine all the time and he writes for Variety and, he, and the Wall Street Journal. So he's in the mix all the time still. Mm-hmm. And I, um, about 2000 to 2010, I started this magazine Revolver, like the, the heavy metal magazine. And I was the editor in chief of that for like 10 years. Um, so I had a lot of relationships from that and so and and I think that during my time as an editor I treated everybody pretty fairly and I was a good hang and stuff so I was able to make phone calls to people um that and they would take my you know they would take my calls like the guy who manages well he just retired but the company that manages Sebastian Bach also um manages Slayer so I knew them and I knew so there were a lot of people where I could make a phone call or send an email and at least it would get looked at and the same with the publicists I had worked with all of them because you know it's always the same it's always the same 10 people you're trying to you know um so that made it easier because I could get at least I could get the email read you know what I mean or I could send a text to somebody right but having said that you know, when you're going for the people in Poison or, um, you know, some of the bigger bands, they, they do, that's a process. You know, that's a process of saying like, well, we've already done all of these people. And certainly when you're sending the emails out, you know, you're putting in this list, here's who we've already talked to. Because um, the guys, nobody wants to be the first one in. Um, you know, nobody wants to be like, Oh, I talked to this guy. It was crazy. Like if they see that you've talked to 15 people or two at some point, at one point it was like, we've talked to a hundred people that made it a lot easier. Um, and then there were people that we just didn't ever get, <laughs> you know, like these people you try and get forever and you never do. Um, who were, who were some certainly of those an element. If you don't mind me asking, who were some of those people that you were like, we have to have for this book, but they were just like, you know, I don't want to do it or the timing just didn't work. Um, Let's see who turned us. Well, we knew, for example, we didn't expect to get him. We would have loved to get him, but that John Bon Jovi wouldn't do do an interview with us. Like, and he sort of, you know, it's funny because he comes off incredibly favorably in this book. Like every band that opened for Bon Jovi during the eighties who we interview for this book are just like, they were the best. They gave us all of the stage, mm-hmm. you know, we needed all of the lights we needed, all of the PA we needed. They mm-hmm. would come by and see if we needed anything. They were awesome. I think that John Bon Jovi uh, sort of is, has transcended this mm-hmm. era. You know, he's like a full on 
celebrity person now and he makes wine and he I think he sort of sees himself in like the Bruce Springsteen Bono League and I don't think he wants to revisit this era so we put in a request but we didn't really think we would ever get him mm-hmm. um you know and we kept trying to think about Gene Simmons actually I see the kiss thing behind you we asked him to do it and he goes you know you're only as good as the company you keep so I respectfully decline um so there are a couple of people like that that we didn't, you know, um, that we didn't end up getting. Some of them, because and uh, and one of the reasons with this book that we didn't end up getting people, it, it wasn't even the the stature of the book. It was that um, some artists aren't comfortable being lumped in with the quote unquote glam metal you know, hair metal thing. So that they would rather not be in a book about this. Um, And so there was some of that, you know, so there were some walls. I think we worked around it real well. And, you know, really when we had to, um, and it didn't happen that much, but look, there's a lot of podcasts out there. There's a lot of other material that you can draw on if you need to. So we were able to, to, to shimmy our way around it when we needed to and and find, uh, you know, archival material and just do research. You know, what surprised me the most about this, not not the book, but just in history in general, because I was born in the late 90s. You know, I'm not but 23 years old. So right. I, I, I didn't live this stuff, but I'm going You're 23. Back, I'm 23. I'm You're going back man. and I'm living this history just within the music and, and, and the, the, the documentaries and the podcast and the books. And what I found very interesting was that for a time, Van Halen they were the band to be like, they were like, we have to be like Van Halen because they're doing something so different that we did at sea. And I don't think, cause I know I didn't realize that because I don't think Van Halen has a big spot in my heart, but for a lot of the people in the eighties that were trying to be something, they were like, we have to be like Van Halen. Absolutely. I mean, I think Van Halen was the sort of like the template mm. for, for, for this music. This was like, this was, you know, you're gonna have the hotshot guitar player, the blonde singer, um, and more importantly to me, mute songs about having a, a good time. Like they're not, Van Halen is the first band where the songs are a little bit funny and they're cheeky and they're about girls and it's not heavy metal about like wizards and demons and stuff, you know? Right. And I think that that's a really important shift. Um, but, you know, they and the, the, the weird thing about Van Halen that we discovered, we didn't really understand this before we started talking to people for the book, is that, you know, when they get signed out of L.A., like in, the, in 76 or whatever it is, um, a lot of the other guys that you end up knowing from this scene, like George Lynch from Dokken and the guys from uh, Twisted Sister and Dana Strum, even from, from Slaughter, they're already all there. Like they're hanging around LA and they're in bands and they all thought that like right after Van Halen got signed and was successful and you know, that they were all going to get signed uh, uh, immediately. They're like, well, why wouldn't the labels want more Van Halen's? Right. And none of them do get signed because actually Van Halen is like this outlier when really the, the record labels at the time were much more interested in signing punk bands and new wave bands and, you know, the next Elvis Costello or the next Clash or, you know, the Knack and stuff like that. So these bands thought like, all right, Van Halen made it out of here. We're we're next. And then they actually had to wait another five years, but definitely that Van Halen created the formula, you know, like that's, you've got to have the amazing guitar player. You've got to have the acrobatic singer. Um, And especially if you were in LA at the time, um, they were absolutely the band to beat. And Eddie, you know, was not the guitar player to beat because most people couldn't beat him, but he was like sort of completely turned the whole world on its head. Right. What? Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. One of of my favorite parts of the book in general is the title of the chapters I, they are hilarious to me like it, the first chapter is i got it pulled up right here it's the pussy plucking posse pocket of hollywood and i was like 
well, I wonder exactly what this chapter is going to be about. <laughs> and it was kind of exactly straightforward. Right. And I enjoyed those title ch- because it's, it's cool when, you know, you take something someone says and you turn it into a chapter and it makes people think, huh, what's this about? And then you hear like, whoever said that was like the pussy fucking fucking. And I was like, ah, I get it. And I right. really, really Michael, like oh, Michael Anthony, I think from Michael Van Anthony. Anthony. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I kind of want to jump around a bit and I want to um, share some stories here because I know we don't have uh, um, a lot of time, but so what was kind of very interesting to me was the eighties were this big, you know, fuck you type of vibe. We're going to rock. We're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to headbang. And then Nirvana comes in and shuts all of that down. And they're like, you know what? That's not, and then it was just, it wasn't they were doing it intentionally, I don't think. It was just this new wave came in and it was like, okay, now we have to change over to Nirvana because look at what they're doing now. And I think that hurt a lot of bands that were in the 80s, you know, because a lot of them, they weren't going to progress over to what Nirvana was doing. They were going to stick with what they knew. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, and it wasn't just, you know, I don't think it was just Nirvana. I think, um, you know, and we, we, we discussed this a lot uh, in the book, but also Rich and I have had conversations about this when we were writing the book, like what really happened. Mm. And I think um, Nirvana, it's a very, I mean, look, there's no doubting the impact that that had. It's funny though, that, you know, I think the, this music, if, really had already had a very good run in the spotlight. Like it had a decade of being sort of like the dominant form of rock for, you know, eight years. So that's a pretty good run. Um, And by the end of like, by the early Mm nineties, the bands themselves even admitted they weren't doing their best work. You know, they like, like all of the, and they were kind of damned if they didn't, damned if they didn't, they were, like if they kept doing the same record over and over, people are going to get bored. And if they change the formula, people are going to walk away from them. So they had just, I think, run out of time. Um, and a lot of the newer bands that were getting signed at the end of the 80s were really already sort of imitations of something that had happened only like five years earlier. So you've got bands imitating Motley Crue or Poison from 1986 in 1990. You know, So it had become very but before I, the interesting thing is that before Nirvana came in, there was like a period of coexistence, you know, like skid and, and no one understood immediately that one music was going to replace the other. Like I saw Alice in Chains when I was in, in college or high school, I forget, and Extreme was opening for them, you know, mm-hmm. and Alice in Chains also played with Great White and, um, Soundgarden, I think, played toured with Skid Row. And so there was a moment in time where it just seemed like, oh, here's this new kind of hard rock. It'll exist with the old kind of hard rock and and everything will just sort of like mush together. Um, And it wasn't this either or situation. And I think though, what Nirvana does, um, and I think also because Kurt Cobain himself as a person I think was appalled by the glam metal. Like, I think he thought it was sexist and homophobic. And so he was really, I think, against it. Um, at that point, I feel like listeners do feel like they kind of have to make a choice, you know, between the old music and the new music. And for one genre to fade out of favor and another to replace it is the, is the history of pop music, right? I mean, that's how it works. Um, you know, ask Elvis about when the Beatles came or, you know, uh, but at the same time, what happened to these bands, the the glam metal bands after grunge came in is something that we've not seen before. I mean, in like modern, uh, like the word that everybody uses now, they were kind of canceled. Like these bands from the 80s after 1993, like they could not, get arrested and it's not it wasn't just the bands like all of the producers like Bo Hill, Tom Worman, um, you know those guys 
who we all interviewed for the book as well, like they couldn't get any jobs. Um, Michael Wagner, they couldn't get jobs anymore. The A&R guys like got fired because bands didn't want to sign with them because they had already signed hair metal bands. Like it went all the way through. It was this house cleaning all the way through the industry. The bands themselves, like who had been playing arenas, suddenly they're playing half empty clubs and musicians, you know, there's a story in the book and he's one of the great interviews in the book and just this totally awesome dude. Brian Forsyth, who's one of the guitar players from Kix, um, who had, you know, they weren't the biggest band, but they had a platinum record and a number nine single. So like they were no joke, you know. Um, after, in 1993, he's in LA and, and he goes to audition for the Wallflowers, Jacob Dylan's band, which is a gig he could totally do, um, you know, because he's a great guitar player. And he goes into this audition and he doesn't even mention that he was in Kicks because he knows that that would be a deal breaker because you know, nobody would want a guy from a hair metal band in, in, in their band. Um, so people are actually like hiding their identities in the 90s. It was a complete, it was, it was just insane. So, and I think that that's really the most unique part of what happened here is just that these, that all of the people involved with this music were suddenly untouchable. Mm -hmm. So I want to know from your perspective, and I'm going to keep it down to two bands because obviously a, a, most of these bands partied like heck. And yeah, I want to know between interviews that you've done in this book, who was the roughest band? Was it Motley Crue or was it Guns N' Roses? I mean, they're both, I mean, you pick the two that are really in contention there, you know. Um, right. They're both pretty rough. Uh, <laughs> in not just, they're the two bands in the book where really hard drugs come up. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, like, there's one or two other ones, but like heroin is really not a thing throughout this book. Like, if you were doing a book on on grunge bands, you'd probably be dealing with it a lot, but um, it's really not a thing in this book, except where Motley Crue and and um, Guns N' Roses is coming out. So those, and they were both um, the bands that sort of were, I feel like real, like outsiders, like like actual badass dudes, you know. And I don't know which one is um, is more badass. I think that like in terms of partying, they probably rivaled each other. You know, Motley Crue's, um, you know, because Nikki Six died a couple to overdosed a couple times. You know. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, He's sort of taken the mantle and sort of become like the poster boy for like really yeah. the, but you know, you know, Izzy Stradlin had troubles with it, Slash had troubles with it. I think he was with Dickie Six one of the nights something bad happened. Um, and then there was just like a tremendous amount of drinking. I think that um, from like what we got in our research, I think in the beginning, Motley Crue was a much more probably fun band. Like Doc McGee, their manager, tell you know, told me, he's like, look, I had, you know, our road manager out there and I told him like, if you have to punch these guys to get them to settle down, like do it, you know? Um, because they were just, especially on that famous Aussie tour in 1983, where like the, they snorted the ants and all that stuff. They were only working 40, yeah. They were only four, they were only working 45 minutes a day. You know what I mean? They're on stage 45 minutes a day. And then the other 23 hours and 15 minutes, like they were just going wild and they were so young. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that they weren't maybe as dark of a vibe as, as Guns N' Roses was. Um, the other thing about Motley Crue, and I'm so I'm not giving you an answer. I'm just giving you things to put in each <laughs> column here. You know, yeah. By all accounts, Motley Crue, even though like these guys were just like drinking and and partying all the time, were incredibly hard workers. Like if they had to be at a radio station at seven in the morning somewhere to sell some tickets or to promote a record they would be there you know they didn't blow stuff off they were very very 
oddly professional and dedicated in, in, in their work ethic. Um, I think that uh, Guns N' Roses was never like that. I mean, Guns N' Roses barely got their first record done. I think Guns N' Roses is a much more complicated um, group of personalities. Yeah, and I think it's, that that's what made, has always made them. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it, it, like you said, they barely got yeah. their first record you done. should, always. And Slash, yeah. I remember in Slash's book, he had mentioned that when they started, they were a person, a band that dabbled in drugs and were heavy in the music. And then the time they became these big stars, they were dabbling in music and these heavy drug stars. You know, it's it, it, it's that's rough. totally yeah. <laughs> and again, and I think that they are also look. I mean. Axel Rose, he's another person we didn't get for the book, and we knew we wouldn't because he just oh, doesn't do it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, um, but you see all the people around him describing him, and he's like, you know, he's a very, very, very intense person, and he will kick your ass if he doesn't like you, like literally. And so, I think that that band was was there was a lot of substance abuse, but I think it was a much more high pressure. Sure environment than motley crew was you know um, i think that like when you there's a lot of big part of our book is how the final classic lineup like as we refer to it of guns and roses comes together with you know people leaving coming guys who start to end up starting la guns and it's really complicated and really sort of like the people who end up in guns and roses in the guns and roses that we know they're all incredibly talented but they're also people who are either so tough themselves or like so easy going that they can hang with Axel. I think that's a really important part of factor for membership in Guns N' Roses is that you can hang with Axel. Yeah, you know, and one of the wildest moments in history for me comes from, you know, Guns N' Roses and Slash. I mean, because I don't remember what, they had, won an, they had won an award, I think it may have been for best album for Appetite for Destruction. And Slash was just there we won this fucking award and it's ours motherfucker. And, and that's the reason why live TV is now, you know, five seconds delayed because of right. Slash and Guns and Roses. And I'm like, that is one of the craziest history stories for me because it's like, I didn't know that. That's awesome. I, I, only reason I know it is because it's fresh in my mind from Slash. Slash was like, we won this award right. and I was up there dropping all these F-bombs. He was totally out of his mind, whacked out. And he was like, now that's why there's a five second delay in any live show in, in, in the world. And I was like, that's how right. you know you're a badass and you, <laughs> you don't care about what yeah. you say. <laughs> but, you know, there was a funny story in here and it was in the, as we kind of wind down here, uh, there was a funny story in the beginning of the book, maybe within the first couple of chapters. And it was D Snyder from Twisted Sister. And you kind of realized that when they were on stage, jokingly, if you were, if, if they saw you in the front row and you were not rocking out, they were going to call you out and make you look like the biggest dick in the planet. I love that. I love that <laughs> D Snyder um and it's funny we did a uh we did a uh, a podcast that he was on and he talked about this um but he would do that like they were you know if you were to and this is when twisted sister was still a cover band like and um they're, but a cover band that could bring in five thousand people a night you know they were like the biggest cover band on the in the new york area they had, you know, they're working like four hours a night and D, he admits, like, he was like, I was out of my mind. Like, I just wanted, like, I could not tolerate the thought that somebody was not like giving me the energy that I needed to be up there. And um, when I was, it, it was funny, he talks about, the reason we found out about him yelling at people is I was interviewing Vito Brada from White Lion, who's like one of the great guitar players of the era. Um, and Vito was like, oh yeah, I saw, I, saw, I saw Twisted Sister a bunch of times. And one night I was standing in the front and I was actually just checking out the amps and all of the gear. And I was standing there with my, um, 
arms crossed and D Snyder picked me out. He became the guy that D Snyder picked out. It was like a whole part. It was a whole part of the set actually, you know, like the light guys knew to like put the lights on this guy in the front row and D just tore Vito a new asshole. He was like, what the fuck is your problem standing here? Like, and then he's like, you know, and he would tell the whole audience to like start booing the person. So it was a real um, like mass humiliation ritual that he would and you know Vito to this day remembers that any credit but he also credits um D. Snyder from after the show of showing him like you gotta get in a cover band if you want to know that's how Vito Brada ends up ultimately forming White Lion. But yeah like Twisted Sister and doing 10 years of playing covers and it was you know what are things because you realize that for them it wasn't really that easy decision to to keep following the dream of becoming an original band like with a record deal because a job for Layton they're each making like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year playing covers which was very unique thing in the east coast so yeah and like D. Snyder, it's very open now that he was completely out of his mind when he was a young man. He'll say that he still is, but like, I don't think he created any less than total devotion for the audience. Who was the one person, if you want to say, you don't have to, that was the hardest person to interview? Not because they were hard to get, but they, they're just so set in their ways. That they're like, you know what? I just want to do this and get it over with because there are a lot of people like that. Let's be honest. That was in the rock world. Were there any like that that you interviewed? You were really going back to your first question about how hard it was to get people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By the time we got people to do the interviews, um, everybody was pretty cool. There's definitely people who are, like nobody came, I didn't get anybody on the phone and feel like they didn't want to be there. You know, okay. even it took me 18 months to get Sebastian Bach on the phone. Um, and when he finally did, I think for like the first five minutes, he was like, all right, let's get this over with. And then once they realized that we really knew what we were talking about and we loved the music, they were, they were okay. You know, some people are more, were more or less crazy than others. Mm. And, um, to sort of flip your story on its head, some people are just particularly amazing interviews, you know, like where they're just both funny and candid and, um, you know, like forget he just passed, but Jeff Labar from Cinderella, mm -hmm. like the guitar player from Cinderella, he like every three lines, he was saying some every three minutes, he's saying something hilarious. So there are people that you're interviewing them and they're like, you know, I see you scribbling right now and you're like, like, but you're just like, that was gold. That was gold. That was gold. That was gold. And there, there were some people like that, like Ricky Rocket of Poison, um, where they're just, they're being really factual and very honest, but also very humorous and just dropping, like they're, they're, you were talking about the sort of like our, how each of our chapters in the book opens with a quote. Yeah. You know, there's some people you interview and they'll give you like 20 of those in an hour where you're <laughs> yeah. just like, you know, like, and so those are the ones I really remember. I mean, no one was really on, it was actually amazing. Cause look, I've done a lot of interviews as a music journalist in my life and I've definitely um, had rough interviews. I think because people were not talking to us to specifically promote something. Sure. So they weren't like in the middle of this giant press day where they were doing, they were actually pretty cool. And then just some of them were amazing. Yeah, and they um, and they like and they weren't and, going and, and and the funniest interviews for me when they're on like this if they got a new book coming out and they're like, yeah, I talk about it in this book which is out August fifteenth of two thousand twenty one. Go get it. Yeah. You know, I, I find those so funny because it's like, hey, yeah. plug away. But but for the like for yeah. this type of stuff that you were doing, you know, you're talking on the phone, you were doing Zoom, you were. I'm pretty sure you were meeting some in person. It was just, hey, let's chill. Two fans of rock and let's just chat about rock let's talk about my life let's talk about other people's lives in music and how and how it propelled the world into what it is today and i think 
And I think that's what you do in this book. You don't just come in and you're just like, okay, who pissed you off this time and why? It wasn't an attack book. It was like, look, we really want to know the true stories of all of these bands and all of the music and what really happened. And so I think that's why you got a lot of great interviews and a lot of great information because of how you, you, and, you and Richard were doing the book. I think so. And I thank you. And I think that, um, you know, we were asking most people when we had the time, we would ask them about their whole career, like, or at least up through 91. Like that's basically, you know, so a lot of what we're asking people about is stuff that they don't have to talk to or talk about all the time. That's the thing. It's like when you're talking to somebody in Warrant, like if you lead, like with like, so why is, do you, do you think that the cherry pie video is stupid? Like they're going to be like, they'll give you an answer, but they're going to inside in their soul. They're already shutting down. You know what I mean? Like, they're just like, like all right, let me get this over with. It's going to be the same five questions I've gotten for the last 35 years. Uh, like, let me just fucking get this over with. But we're actually going to these people and being like, so how did you start the band? What bands did you like? What was like, and like, we're going through their whole life with them. And so I think both they're getting to talk about stuff that they're not usually getting to talk about, but they're also getting to like realize like, oh, this person actually cares about like me as a musician and my art and my like the struggle and the work I put in and not just like these three bullet points from Wikipedia. Right. And, you know, I don't want to turn it to me, but that's kind of how I do the show. I'm like, I don't want to know how, you know, this album came about because I can easily look up how this album came about. And, and I know you talked about it to 15 different people in the last 45 days, you know, and it's like, I want to know the stuff right. that nobody is ever going to know unless you talk to them about it. And so it, it, it's crazy because you do see a lot of people shut down. You do see a lot of people say, yeah, this song happened this way and we wrote it this way. But once you just kind of come in, then that will just come organically. Did you find that as well? Like if you just talk about it and then you say, you know, you're talking for warrant, for example, you're talking about their life going in and out of, you know, music and who their heroes were cherry pie is obviously going to come up but they're going to be more right. organically into answering the questions instead of okay first question is cherry pie what did how, how, how do you feel people think that song's stupid yeah. you, you know what i mean does that make sense yeah i mean i think yeah totally and i think that that's also just because we were trying to tell like i mean with the band there's about 10 bands that we tell their whole story mm -hmm. and so for those guys i mean like also i was doing long interviews i mean with um with some of the guys in Warren, I think I went like two sessions, like two out, two full hours, or you know, because like I needed to get the whole beginning of the story when they're in Ohio and then Florida and then moving to LA and how Warren actually was already a band. Like it's a very complicated story, and I need to get all these people. And I, you know, I again, these aren't inter these are not the kind of interviews these guys do all the time. So I think they enjoy it, and and mm -hmm. to not be getting these like five same questions it's also kind of stressful because you got to be entertaining enough to the person you're interviewing them to keep them on the phone because like i would like look at these lists of questions and i'd be like looking at the clock and i'd be like holy shit we're like 27 minutes into this interview and they still and I, I still haven't gotten to the part where they moved to la yet and you're like oh fuck am i going to get to the end of it you know and are they going to get back on the phone with me and you're like you know you you do the same thing when you're doing your podcast so you're like thinking like did I get this done? Did I get this done? I got to move them along and tell them to shut the fuck up and get to this next thing, you know? Um, so your, your brain is going a million miles an hour, even if you're trying to act chill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, man, you got a couple more questions for you. If you're cool with that. Um, so the yeah. first one I want to know is you're out of, I, I, you've done 200 interviews. There's 200 people in the book, but what is one interview that stands out where you're like you know that is going to be my favorite interview probably i've done my whole life i mean for me and it's kind of a nerdy thing it was vito brada from white lion because he was when i was okay. growing up and i grew up in the 80s um he was one of my three favorite guitar players like of all time and he does not do interviews i think he started doing them more now that he saw the book come out and it like it did well and people are really like sort of enjoying it but when i interviewed him which was probably 2018 or 17 he had done one interview in the 20 years before that 
So like I, there was nothing out there on him. And I was just like, I got to get him. I got to get him. Like I thought I've said, and it's true. Like maybe the book was just an excuse to talk to him. Um, and he was just so funny and cool. And like, we spent the first 10 minutes of the interview. He lives on Staten Island and it was like near Easter. And he was talking to, like, he just spent 10 minutes like talking about like how he had to cook for everybody and what a pain in the ass cleaning the stuff up. Like, it was just like, a, I'm like, I'm growing down with my, like my favorite <laughs> guitar player, like a dude that I've spent 1 million hours um, trying to learn his stuff and failing. Um, and his perspective on the end of the era was just so good too. And, and really touching because he's one of the people like he never really, he never started another band after White sure. Lion broke up. Like right. the grunge thing and people and the world deciding that the kind of music that he had put his heart and soul into was like dumb and sucked. Um, <laughs> that broke him mentally. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, it broke a bunch of people, but like that dude was like one of the best guitar players. And anyone you ask from that era will agree. And he just like the, the rejection of glam metal by everyone. Like it just, it, 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 it sapped his will to live. Like he never did another record. He never even guessed it on another person's record. So for me, that was like talking to a ghost. Um, so that was a really, to me, I know that he's not like the most famous person in the book, but to me, that was like just amazing. And then the other one, and it was not a musician, was Doc McGee, who's the manager of, who he managed Motley Crue and he right. managed Kiss Now. And he managed Bon Jovi, and he's the guy who went to jail, you know, for for smuggling marijuana, yeah. like like in the eighties, and like so yeah. he's like a badass. Yeah. And when you get on the phone with him, he sounds exactly like Tony Soprano, like he's like, hey, yeah, <laughs> and so like you're talking to this guy, and he's really funny and stuff, but you're like kind of like, not that I actually felt like I was, in, but you're, you're just like because you got to push him a little bit. I'm like I do not want to piss this guy off. Yeah. Like if I do not want to see what happens when the switch flips, you know, and like this guy is like, like sending people after me or whatever. And he was just so funny, you know, talking about telling his road managers, like I said, to like beat up Motley Crue when he had to and explaining how Bon Jovi was successful and so like foul mouthed and just like intelligent that he was another amazing person a lot of the people really that we got the best interviews from for the book were not the musicians it's right. the managers and the producers and the people at right. the labels because they kind of have a completely different perspective on it if you could have this is going to be the final question for you if you could have three people and i'll go first if you want to have time to think but who are three people that you would love to sit down with and just chat not not writing a book not doing any type of interview you just want to sit down with these three people and chat for me it would be uh probably paul stanley i think he's he's one of the greatest of all time in my opinion i would say steven tyler but his mind is so effed over that he probably wouldn't remember most of the stuff i wanted to ask him anyways <laughs> so i'd probably leave him out if i was going to i would I would I put Dwayne Johnson in there and then I would also put um you know I I'd probably put Paul McCartney because I would want to know about the Beatles. I would want to know about the rise of the Beatles in America. I would want to know all that from perspective. Have you watched that new documentary um with Rick Rubin? Is it out yet? The, where, the, where they're going the, through all the songs? It's the, out. It's out. It's on uh, Hulu. You got to watch oh, it, dude. Shit. I didn't know it, it was amazing. out. I didn't know it was out yet because I knew they were working on it and it was taken like, okay, shit, I'm going to go. I got to know the podcast. I got to know the podcast of this, but I'm going to watch it probably tonight. I didn't realize it was yeah. out because I knew they were working on it for like four or five years. Somebody got it and then it, they scrapped it. And then somebody put oh, it. This is up. not the Peter. This is not, not okay. the Peter Jackson. Let it okay. Up, okay. Is, okay. There's this thing on Hulu and it's Rick Rubin who produced like all the BT right. boys and right. all that stuff. And, and, right interviewing paul mccartney and they're pulling up individual tracks from the songs you got to see it it's oh. mind-blowing um okay do it do it yeah I, I will. um so if you don't have hulu subscribe and then i've got, I've got hulu <laughs> <laughs> um, but um uh, but uh for me the three people because we did not actually interview him for the book because he does not do interviews anymore 
um, because he thinks that everybody's going to make fun of him. But he was one of my heroes growing up. I would like to hang out for an hour with CC the Bill of Poison because he yep. is like my spirit animal. Yep. Um, and these are going to be weird answers because I actually have in my career as a journalist interviewed almost everybody that I ever wanted to. Okay. So which is a dick thing to say, but it's true. So um, fine. So this is kind of some outliers. Um, Steve Jones, the guitar player from the Sex Pistols, who has right. the best radio show ever and is just hilarious and one of my guitar heroes. I would love to, and he's so fucking funny. I, and he also rides motorcycles, which I do. So like my real dream with him <laughs> is to go ride motorcycles with Steve Jones. Um, who else would? Who else would want to? Like those two, definitely. Um, and you know who else? Because I grew up such a fan and I've never interviewed him and I've heard he's actually the coolest dude is, uh, and this is going to be completely weird given the topic we're discussing, but Peter Buck from REM. Who is, I loved early REM when I was in high school. And I know a bunch of people who know him and everybody's just like, he's the coolest, most normal guy. And he says, you would love him. And I'm just like, yeah oh wow and it's it's and so i would i wouldn't want to interview him because i think he's probably a guy who's heard the same questions yeah all over you know over and over and over but i would love um i would love to like hang out with, with you know, him like just like meet him like at a barbecue you sure know? sure you know that's like me like Aerosmith is my favorite band of all time and i i have one specific question that i would love to ask steven tyler because i know for a fact he has never been asked this question and i'm not i'm, I'm never going to say it on air because it's just like you know somebody's going to take that shit and, and, and it's going to ruin me but and it's just like but could you ask that because it's like like you said he's all messed up and when he had I've, I've seen interviews with him and he's always like has this person with him he's like what's this guy talking about you know it's like well <laughs> He just, he's got a mind of it. I remember, I remember, I think it was when Nine Lives was coming out, mm. which was like, was that like 2001 or 2002 or something? 2000? Right. Um, when that yeah, record right. was coming out. Right. It had like Taste of India and stuff like that. I flew to Boston. They were finishing the record and I flew to Boston. It was for Revolver or Guitar World, I forget. And I went to Joe Perry's house. And, oh, man. Uh, I was I was interviewing Joe, but Steven Tyler was there too because they were mixing. And I remember walking. There was like this barn on Joe's property that was like up the hill, and this was right when Radiohead had followed up OK Computer with with Kid A, which was like this really weird synthesizer record. And I'm walking down this hill with Steven Tyler, and he goes, "Hey man, what do you think of that new Radiohead album?" <laughs> and I'm like, that's a weird question to get from Steven Tyler. And um, I'm like, I think it's pretty good. I like the old one better. I thought the songs were better, but I, I think it's interesting like they're trying to do. And he just goes, I think they do one more record like that. And like, I, as far as I remember, I could be making this up, I'm pretty sure. He like snapped his hand and did like a pirouette. He goes, one more record like that, they're out of here. <laughs> that, was his, that was his pronouncement on, on Radiohead. Obviously, he was not correct. But that was my one, I never interviewed Steven Tyler, but I got to walk down a hill with him and have that conversation. Um, and he definitely is a guy like David Lee Roth, I feel like probably where you can ask him any question you want, but he may not answer the question that you asked. Sure, sure, you know, sure. That's, he may, sure. He's, gonna, he's gonna answer whatever he's thinking about. Sure, yeah. yeah. Tom, man, I appreciate you coming on. You guys have to read nothing but a good time if you're a music nerd like myself and like tom and like richard beanstalk it it's absolutely mind-blowing it's it's crazy even the, the audio book is is very fascinating because they got a female and they got a male but the, it's it's absolutely phenomenal man and it, like i said i'm not just saying it because you're on here it's it's crazy but it, it, it it's a crazy great story I I really appreciate you having us on. I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. Yeah, it's nice to work on something for four years that people like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a much better outcome than the other way around. Yeah, man. So I want to. Um, we're still recording, but all this left is going to be edited out uh, because I live by ABR. Always be recording. 
but um, just got a quick uh, question for you. And and if not, it's cool. Um, and I could also I pay whatever you wanted me to. But is there any way you could sign a book to the to the podcast and kind of send it over, and I'll pay for shipping yeah. in the book or whatever? Totally. Yeah, totally. You don't even need to pay for shipping in the book. Um, send. Do you have my email? I don't have your personal. You, do, I, you email me, right? No, I, 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 was it Melissa? Is that her name? I, I, oh, Catherine? Catherine. Yes, that's, that's who I emailed. I don't have your personal. No, I don't. All right. My, mine is uh, T Beaujour. So T and then my last name. Uh huh. B E A. At Gmail. Uh huh. B E A U J O U R. Right. At Gmail. Just shoot me your address. Cool, man. I mean, if, if, if you, I'll shit you over a Venmo or PayPal if I have to, but I would really love to. Uh, no, no, no. Don't worry about to it. To get it signed to the podcast. And I'll, um, I have a couple of like Jim Cornette, a big wrestling fan, um, sent me over his book and signed it. And I would love to, to place it on the wall. So awesome. I will, I will send one out uh, in the next couple of days. Just shoot me your address and I'll do that. Absolutely. Just to hodgepodge, not to, not I, to, uh, okay. well, um, I, I will put what to put it on if you, if you would, just to, to okay. Fucking. Awesome. Tom, I appreciate. Do you want you. it on the cover or in the? Um, do you want it signed on the cover or on the inside? Whatever you want to do, I'll do. I usually do the inside. That's fine. Do it on the inside, and I'll just uh, I'll take it and uh, get it printed out and frame it. Oh, do, would you rather get the cover? I'll do whatever you oh, want. Dude. I don't care, man. It doesn't I want to make you happy. Um. Okay. It's fine. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. Whatever. Whatever makes you comfortable. Okay. Whatever. Whatever's faster for you. Honestly. All right. Cool. Dude, but uh, I, yeah, just send me your address and I'll totally do that. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate you so much doing this um, for, for, for a small, stupid podcast like myself. Uh, <laughs> um, I, it was incredible getting to talk to you and I hope I made you comfortable on here and I hope we uh, hit all. Absolutely. Points. You're really, you're, 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 uh, you're, you're wise beyond your years. Uh, young man, you're good, good interviewer. I appreciate that. Once you get a new book out or when you got a new project coming out, I'd love to get you back on. I'll get with Catherine and uh, we'll set something up. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. You have a good, have a good day. day. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Cool. You too. All right. Bye. Yo, what up, Ken folk? This your boy, Smo, and you're listening to the HodgePodge podcast. So the movie I want to review today is the movie Sweet Girl from Jason Momoa, and it's on Netflix. You know, I'm a good beat 'em up type of movie, and that's what I thought I was going into watching this. So basically what this movie is about is Jason Momoa is married and has a daughter. And this is not giving anything away. This is basically the premise of the movie. His wife gets diagnosed with cancer. And... They go to the hospital and there's this certain medicine that they can get that is like 99% curable for cancer. And so when they go to, to get the procedure done to get the medication, it turns out the medication, the people that put out the medicine decided against putting it out. So they put Jason Momoa's wife and all these patients that were setting up, they let them down because they were no longer releasing the medicine. His wife dies. His wife passes away from cancer and he sees the owner of the medicine on TV, on a talk show. So he calls him to the talk show and he's like, you guys killed my wife. You guys are going to get it. And so he goes on this massive killing spree trying to get revenge for his wife. And people would be like, well, that, that's a great story. Actually, it was quite boring. If, if I'm being totally honest with you, the first 20, 30 minutes had me, but then it just kind of dropped, the plot dropped off a lot. Like, the story is... Really good. Fantastic. But the whole... I don't know what happened. It was like they got lost in the storytelling and they forgot what they were doing. Like, there is really 
honestly, not really that much action and killing in it. And I know you, you don't want that in a movie, but if it, the movie's about getting revenge for your dead wife, you're going to kill every last one of them until she gets her revenge. Don't you think there should be a little bit more action instead of, you know, three or four spots? And I feel the movie, I feel the movie fell off a lot. And then there's this big twist at the end, but I don't think that twist saved the movie for me. And I'm not spoiling that by saying there's a twist because it's, it's a mystery. It's a thriller. There's always twist in those types of movies but I don't think the twist at the end of the film was even able to save the movie and with the twist they went too long with it they went too long with the twist instead of it ending there and you figuring out what happened it keeps going for like 20 more minutes and I think it should have stopped because the movie's like an, like an hour and 45. I think if they would have stopped it an hour and 25, hour and a half, it would have been perfectly, well, it would have been perfectly fine. It still would have been boring in my opinion. But I, And I don't necessarily think it was boring all that out. It was just they lost the process. They lost what they were trying to do. And they tried to make it a, try to get you confused, but it didn't work. I just found it, really boring so that is my opinion and thoughts and review on sweet girl starring jason momoa and this chick played um she played a live action door of the explorer i've never watched it but that, that's where she's from um and it's on netflix so i'm gonna give it two out of five i i didn't really like it i thought it was kind of boring so Two out of five for Sweet Girl on Netflix starring Jason Momoa. Guys, if you don't really, unless you're just a big Jason Momoa fan, you watch every movie he puts out, don't watch it. I think it's kind of trash. <laughs>